0: Riley said it well earlier, and she said there's a lot of stuff in the passage I have for today that came from the hat. My task is to expound on and try to explain the six seals in chapter 6 of Revelation, but there's a problem. Limiting myself to chapter 6, when the seventh seal is in chapter 8 and is the climax, means what do I do with chapter 7? Do I expound on it too? And if so, we'll be here till 3 o'clock this afternoon. But if I don't expound on it, how do I somehow include it, or do I just ignore it and kind of preach it out of context? And what about the fact that the seals are intimately related to the trumpets and the bowls which follow and take chapters 8 through 16? And what about the fact that chapters 4 and 5 really are important foundation for what comes in chapter 6? <laughs> revelation, sir, how long do you have? Let me briefly set the stage here. The Apostle John, because he refused to stop preaching the gospel, was banished to a lonely island called Patmos. And while he was there, an angel of God came and, first of all, gave him a message for seven different churches, and he writes those out in the first three chapters. And then he's invited by an angel up into a heavenly vision, and he sees heaven in all of its fullness and all of its glory. And he's told that while he is there, he will see what takes place after this. And while there, he sees the risen, reigning, living Lord Jesus Christ, the lion lamb seated on the throne. And all the living creatures are bowing down. They're giving praise to him and they're, they're singing, Worthy is the lamb who was slain. He's the only one who is worthy to open the seals of judgment because he alone with his blood purchased people for God who will reign with him. And only when the seals are open can God's plan for the ages continue. Revelation 4 and 5 is a powerful scene which, if we let it really get absorbed into our being, drives us to our knees in humility and awe of the risen, reigning Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Revelation is puzzling. And it's designed to make us ponder and pray, not so much to get answers to all of our questions. So as I wrestled with all of that this week, I decided to preach on You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. So with that in mind, let's turn then to the sixth chapter of Revelation. We'll read chapter 6, and then we'll read the first five verses of chapter 8, so we encompass all seven seals. Let us hear the word of the Lord. I watched as the Lamb opened the first seven seals, Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, Six pounds of barley for a day's wages, And do not damage the oil and the wine." When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it moving to revelation 8 when he opened the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for about half an hour and i saw the seven angels were stand before god and seven trumpets were given to them another angel who had a golden censer came out and stood at the altar He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. May God add his blessing. To this reading of his word. Amen. Growing up, I had three buddies in our church with whom I was very close. We did a lot of things together, and sometimes we were inseparable. At the time, I thought it was complimentary when some people started calling us the four horsemen. Years later, when I began to study Revelation, I had a hunch they might have been referring to something else. But today we join John in attending a master play in the Divine Theater. And in this first act, we meet the real Four Horsemen, better known as the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. The action unfolds quickly and decisively before us, and it is complicated. So let's pray as we seek to unveil the mystery before us. Father of all wisdom, grant us insight beyond our own, understanding deeper than what we possess. Use your Holy Spirit to enlighten us as we listen to you in the midst of this great but difficult portion of your word. What we can understand in the here and now, teach us. And what we are to know only when we see you face to face. Help us accept in faith and trust you all the more. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's begin by affirming that there is a context of history in the book of Revelation. The visions that begin in this sixth chapter concern what has come to be known as the last days. Now, as most of you recognize, the last days is rather controversial in terms of how you interpret it, and yet it's important to understand in order to really set the stage for a correct interpretation of the book of Revelation. So, here's an important perspective. On the day of Pentecost, people were wondering what was happening. Remember, they were speaking in tongues, and there were flames of fire. Peter preached a sermon, and in that first sermon, he simply said that Joel's prophecy was coming true. And what was the prophecy? Acts two sixteen and 17. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. In other words, Peter said the events of Pentecost set in motion the last days. The last days began with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ and will only end when he returns. That's what the early church believed. Consider Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, In many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. John the Apostle who had the vision and wrote Revelation also wrote an epistle in 1 John 2.18 he said, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. The last days are here now and they will be until Christ comes again. And this Perspective points us to an intense progression, which is our focus this morning. The the scrolls and the seals contain a description of the last days. That is, they tell us what is and what will be at the end. We will see the world as it is today and as it will be. We are seeing what is, and what will be. In fact, John said at the very beginning of the Book of Revelation that was his purpose. One nineteen. Now write what you see what is and what is to take place hereafter and that means the seals and the trumpets and bowls which follow are all interconnected each is symbolic of various principles of divine judgment and through them we see how God works out his judgment through forces and dynamics already operating in history maybe this example will help I pulled up Google Earth to view the area where Barbara and I live. Can you see where we live? Okay, so I, I zoomed in. Basically the same view, but it's, it's a little closer, more detail. Then I zoomed in again. Now, we don't have a red X on our roof, but I wanted you to see which one was ours, all right? Also, want you to note that, that road that's all crackly after the Picard's move got paved, so they upgraded it when we got there. But anyways, I show you that to say that they all show the same thing, but from different perspectives. And that's what we're doing today. We are simply going to peel back the first layer of what is and what is to come. And from within this context of history, we understand what is current. In history. The answer lies in the first five seals of Revelation in Revelation 6. Play opens with the first seal in verses 1 and 2. We see a rider on a white horse carrying a crossbow and wearing a crown. This is a symbol of desire, a symbol of desire for conquest. It indicates that there always will be warfare. One nation trying to conquer another, one nation always wanting more territory. Forceful subjugation of people will be a fact of life, and increasingly so. Nations will always crave the power to conquer more and conquer some new foe, gain some new territory. Certainly, that explains much of what we see in our world, does it not? It's not surprising to discover that at its height, communism conquered about 500 square miles of land per day. And just think of what we hear or see in our daily news. Check out Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, North Korea, Egypt, the Middle East, Russia, Ukraine. One nation desiring another, trying to conquer one more foe. We live in interesting times. Today, nations are more dependent upon each other than ever before, and yet also more at odds. No matter how many treaties there are, the truth is, nations stockpile weapons out of fear and out of a desire to conquer more. The spirit of conquest rules. But beware, you ain't seen nothing yet. Then John witnesses the opening of the second seal in verses 3 and 4. This is a red horse. So we see a red horse galloping across the stage, symbolizing the fact that this rider is permitted to take peace from the earth. Now this is more than conquering. This is a killing of one another. There's, there's no peace between people. This is not nation against nation. This is division. That's the seal. It is division within nations and families. There will be trouble within. It's a constant repeat of Cain and Abel throughout history. It's part of these last days. People will turn on one another in greater numbers. All the restraints will be removed so that envy and jealousy and hatred and strife will rule. It is and will be as Zechariah the prophet prophesied in Zechariah 14, 13. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will lay hold on the hand of his fellow, and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of the other. Isaiah prophesied it in 19.2, And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight every man against his brother and every man against his neighbor. One of the aims of communism, and now of terrorists, is to keep us so busy trying to defend ourselves from out there so they can infiltrate us from the inside and get us fighting with one another. Historians, in fact, claim that's really why Rome fell. It wasn't some other superior power which attacked them from without. It was how they crumbled from within. Any nation with unrest and division is doomed to fall. A house divided against itself cannot stand. The red horse reminds us it is so and always will be. But beware. Because you ain't seen nothing yet. Then, verses 5 to 6 comes seal 3. This time it's a black horse. <clears throat> the rider is holding scales. It's evidence of Deprivation deprivation due to economic problems due to economic problems there's a scarcity of products an uneven distribution of wealth and let's face it that's what war does does it not it contributes to economic chaos in the time of war. people grab for what they can get, they store it up for themselves, there's little left to spread around, and therefore there's scarcity which drives prices higher and John points out that one day 's wages buys one day's worth of food, people working all day just to put food on the table the next day. But God said it would be so leviticus 2626 26, When I cut off your supply of bread, ten women will be able to bake your bread in one oven, and they will dole out the bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. Ezekiel, the fourth chapter, verses 16 and 17. Son of man, I am about to cut off the food supply in Jerusalem. The people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair, for food and water will be scarce. They will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. And what about the distribution of food and wealth? It says oil and wine are untouched. And as I studied that, I think what it says is the rich will be unscathed. The poor get poorer, the rich get richer. The poor struggle to hang on while the rich wallow in their caviar and their champagne. I wonder, does all of this sound familiar? Have you ever felt like you're being required to live on less and less while well, the extremely wealthy are not? And before you jump on me, the Bible does not condemn being rich. But what it does say is there's something radically wrong in a world in which the scales are tipped heavily in favor of the really wealthy. It's a sign that the end is rapidly approaching. Think of how wealthy our nation is and how poor are some of our neighbors. Think of some of the other wealthy nations and of their poor neighbors. The trouble of a great magnitude is on the way. Meanwhile, even though we consider ourselves a rich nation and in many ways we are, we have to deal with the fact that our massive national debt has be- made us the largest debtor in the entire world. And Think of this. The amount spent throughout the world each day on military equipment and personnel is equal to the cost of feeding, clothing, and housing the entire world for one year. Each day, 25,000 people including more than 10,000 children, die from hunger and hunger-related causes. It's estimated that some 854 million people worldwide are estimated to be undernourished, and high food prices may drive another 100 million into poverty and hunger. Yet, it will always be so. But beware, you ain't seen nothing yet. And before we can catch our breath, John opens the fourth seal, verses 7 and 8, and out gallops a pale horse which stands for death and pestilence. And does that not also always follow war? And here it represents the power to bring about the demise of a significant portion of the earth's population through murder, famine, and plagues. It's really stressing all the various forms of death that strike people in this world unexpectedly. it was a 23rd century list, it would probably include auto accidents, plane crashes, terror attacks, mass murders, hunger epidemics, heart attacks, disease epidemics, things like COVID. The truth is, for all of our medical research and discoveries, we seem to discover more and more unknown, untreatable diseases. And for all of our high-tech security, we see increasingly... Increasingly, that our enemies find more ways to attack us. We see now, and we will see increasingly that people die from unexpected causes. Verse 8 pictures it graphically. It mentions even the beasts will be killing people and will rule. As soon as people die off, the beasts gain more control. It's interesting, I had my sermon all set, and two days ago, I read an article that said, in one of our states out east, back in 1975, grizzly bears were becoming extinct, so they passed a law that they could not be hunted or killed, and now they refused to take it off the books, and so now the grizzly bears are attacking people in the small towns, maiming and sometimes killing them. Can you imagine where my mind went when I read the article? But notice here, it's only for a time. The number of deaths, only a quarter will die. All of which means it's not yet the end. But right here, let's pause for a take-home. Remember that the tragedies of this nature do not mean that God is no longer in control. It means precisely the opposite. God is working things out, He prophesied it in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, especially through Jesus. He said it would happen, and the fact that it happened shows that, indeed, He is still in control. And we see in Revelation, Jesus is still on the throne. And if Christ is in control of all the crises of our world, certainly He can handle our own personal crises as well. We will never, ever be forsaken. Yet beware, for you ain't seen nothing yet. Suddenly, as we watch the play, there's a flash, and the lighting changes, the scenery is switched, and we see a view of what's happening right there in heaven. Verses 9 to 11, we see the fifth seal, and it alters our viewpoint. It's a scene of the martyrs under the altar. I like how Herman Lockyer put it, We move from horses to heroes, from steeds to saints. The martyr's lifeblood has been poured out as an offering and sacrifice to God, and he has received it, he has accepted it. And as John listens, he hears the voices of the martyrs crying out for God's judgment to fall upon the wicked. The phrase, the inhabitants of the earth, refers to those who are opposed to God and His purposes. And the martyr's questions to God are, how long... How long will this wickedness be allowed to roam the earth, unchecked and unpunished? It's the cry of the ages. How long, O Lord? On May 15th of this year, a young man named Fadi went to work, as usual, at the construction company where he worked. He'd been there since 2017. On that day, he was joined by Muhammad, a bulldozer driver, Two men had never met each other until that day. By the end of the day, Fadi was dead, murdered by Muhammad. Why? I killed him, said Muhammad, because he's a Christian. I hate Christians. Stories like that fill the news every day. They churn us on the inside, And we wonder, how long, O Lord? Justice and hope seem so far off. The words of Psalm 94 seem horrifically relevant. Rise up, judge of the earth. Pay back the proud what they deserve. How long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? And don't we cry the same? How long for terrorism? How long for sex trafficking? How long for the exploitation of our children? How long for North Korea? How long for Iran or for Iraq? How long for radical religions that seek to destroy and kill? How long for rebellions, murder, and chaos in our street? How long, O Lord, will sin reign? And he answers the martyrs and us with one word. Wait. There is delay. That's what this seal is all about. Delay. In time, God will send forth His wrath. But there are still more martyrs to come. The martyrs have been chosen. A number has been established. And when the last one comes to the altar, then, then and only then will judgment come. Paul tells us in Galatians that when the time was right, Christ came. And the Bible tells us that when the time is right, He will come again. But in the meantime, in the meantime, the martyrs under the altar receive their white robes. It all makes me wonder about our timid attitudes today. We tend to be so careful to be sure we don't offend anybody with our faith. We sure wouldn't want to upset someone else or bring any pressure on ourselves. And I'm not saying we should go out and offend people, but I am saying we have to stop being afraid to testify to our faith. Could we ever really understand or hope to join the martyrs? The white robes of, of purity and victory are given to them because they are special to God. And they cry out now, and they will continue to. Their cries will increase until that day. But beware. You ain't seen nothing yet. So we've seen the context of history. A glimpse of current history. Now in 12 to 17, we see more. The play is not over. There is more coming in history. We're brought kind of to... To the brink of the end, John sees the opening of the sixth seal. Disaster. Disaster in the realm of what is yet to be. Seven major events or happenings are listed here. There'll be great earthquakes, sun darkening, moon turning to blood, stars falling, sky splitting, mountains moving, islands moving from their places. And whether these are literal or not, and they may well be, there is terror upon terror Worse than we have ever seen or imagined. And all these events are in the Old Testament and they're there as divine interventions. In each case, the context points to the close of history. The New Testament affirms it. Jesus talked about it. Check out Mark 13 or Matthew 24 or Luke 21 where Jesus says there will be a day of judgment. And here in Revelation, Jesus repeats himself. So what does the future hold? Everything we've just seen and more in greater intensity. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 8, But the end is not yet. All this is but the beginning of the birth pains. Beware. You ain't seen nothing Yet. let's be clear verses 15 to 17 there is a time of judgment coming all people great or small will face it the whole fabric of human society will be judged there will be no exemptions there will be no get out of jail free and the judgment will be so severe that people will seek to hide from it people will feel it's better to have a mountain collapse on them than to face the living God in judgment terrible death will be preferred to the wrath of God Verse 17 says it so well, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now we need to understand that there's two words for wrath used in Revelation. The first one, thumos, refers to a sudden boiling up inside that eventually goes away. It's like somebody does something to you, you get mad and you react, but eventually it goes away. That's not the word for wrath that's used here. The word that's used for wrath here, which is also used at the end of the trumpets and the bowls, is orge, and it means God's abiding, ever-present universal opposition to evil and sin. It's saying that God does not have hissy fits. He doesn't see something, get react, get angry, and then let it go away and change his mind. It means there is within God an everlasting wrath that was evidenced at Calvary. The cross was not only salvation in its fullest form, it was also judgment in its fullest form. That's why Calvary is the only place to escape God's wrath. Only there do wrath and mercy meet. But the whole point is, a day is coming when people will not be able to get to Calvary any longer. The road will be blocked be like driving through Michigan in the summertime. Detour here, detour there, and you never can get to where you want to go. Only a lot worse. And judgment will be thrown down upon them. So beware. You ain't seen nothing yet. Before we move into chapter 8, just a couple sentences, and then what happens in chapter 7, because it's so critical. The thrust of chapter 7 is that God, through Jesus is in this delay completing the saving of his people. That's also why there is a delay. The end will not come until all God's people have been brought to him. In other words, our world is in a period of grace. But this grace period has an ending. And that's what brings us to the seventh seal in chapter 8. And when it's opened, there is silence what Habakkuk prophesied in Habakkuk 2.20 the Lord is in his holy temple let all the earth keep silence before him John said finally after about half an hour something happens half an hour didn't seem long but realize that in the other seals things happened immediately rapid fire but here here there's this long half hour which means before the final judgment there will be a long and awesome silence in heaven And then what happens? Angels appear with trumpets, ready to announce still more of what is to come. And they appear to say, you still ain't seen nothing yet. And then there's another scene change. The prayers of the saints, along with the incense of Christ's life, rise up to God. And there will be deliverance. The seventh seal is a seal of deliverance. The prayers for judgment will be heard. They will take effect. They will prevail. And notice they return to the earth in judgment. Verse 5 of chapter 8, And the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, hurled it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Even as Christ was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, so are we with our prayers. We see them rise up beautifully and then return to the earth violently. In other words, judgment begins in answer to our prayers. The altar of salvation is the altar of judgment. That's what Paul meant when he wrote the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 15. For we are like sweet-smelling incense offered by Christ to God. Which spreads among those who are being saved and those who are being lost. For those who are being lost, it is a deadly stench that kills. But for those who are being saved, it is a fragrance that brings life. So, what is the power behind the world? What is the key to the time of judgment? It's the prayers of the saints. Somebody has said the prayers of the saints are God's disruptive presence in the fallen world. More potent, more powerful, more dynamic than all the powers of the world is the power set ablaze by the fire of God when it's cast upon the earth in answer to prayer. This was actually in the heart of Jesus. Luke twelve forty nine, Jesus said, I came to cast fire upon the earth. How I wish it was already ablaze. Beware of people who say Jesus never said anything negative, that he was nothing but love. Jesus is love, but Jesus came with fire ablazing in his heart that he wanted to cast upon the earth in judgment. So beware. You ain't seen nothing yet. And so we're ready for the end. It's as if the final rocket of the fireworks display has been launched but it's not quite the end. The rockets exploded, and and now there are, of course, speckles and sparks falling, floating to the earth. We'll see more of them. But we ain't seen nothing yet. But let's bring it home. There is hope for us. Remember, it's not the especially strong or gifted or beautiful or rich or clever or influential or blessed. It's those who belong to Jesus Christ. Isaiah prophesied it in 54.10, For the mountains may depart, the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Each of us, every one of us will face the judgment. And if we're not for Jesus, the Lion, Lamb on the throne, we're against him. There is no in-between. So I leave you with some questions. How is it with you? How is it with your family? How is it with your friends? How is it with your co-workers? How is it with your fellow students? How is it with your employees? How is it with your teammates? Let's heed Jesus' warning from Luke 21. Watch out. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. Don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap, for that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep alert at all times and pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. Our hope is in Jesus. We cannot escape or survive without Him. And neither can those we know In this period of grace, we must go to Calvary while the way is still clear and take everyone we can with us. Because the worst, but also the best, is yet to come. It's just that you ain't seen nothing yet. Let's pray. Lord God. Speak to us what we need to hear. We thank you for the beloved Apostle John. Thank you that your word through him still stands. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who helps us understand and who leads us to faith. In these moments, in this period of grace, Lord, deal with us, stir our hearts. There be any Lord who has never said, "Lord, I believe." I One stands with you and for you. May this be that moment. And may none of us leave here today without the assurance of the faith that is found in you. Help us to search for answers but to be content, sometimes Lord, with the simple knowledge that Jesus Christ is seated on the throne and he reigns forever and ever. And we can fight the battle on our knees because our hope is in you. Do a work within us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.